Pace Line is produced by the Cycling Independent with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community-focused, community-supported, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. Always remember, at the Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Um, John, you revealed to me before we started recording that um, your morning was maybe more interesting than some. It's true. I have (laughs) fallen off my bike today. Fallen off is the wrong word. It implies that I was on it, and then, hoopsie, I fell off. Um, I'll just give the abridged version. Um, This won't seem abridged, but I'll give the abridged (laughs) version. I've I've been a little under the mental weather uh, the last week or so, and that has uh, negatively impacted my sleep. Hmm. And so I got up at, or I woke up at four this morning with a head full of just nonsense. And there was a ride, a gravel ride with some friends going out at seven. And everything in my being said, don't go ride. Uh, but um, I overcame that because riding is the cure for the problems in my head. So I went out and I rode and. Uh, I was just kind of going through the motions, which is fine. Uh, you know, one one pedal stroke in front of the other, uh, to to paraphrase. Mm-hmm. And anyway, we, we were on a trail uh, that I have not ridden before. And coming into, we were coming perpendicular to a pretty sketchy bridge that someone had fashioned uh, th- over and through a wetland. Sketchy bridges are the best kind of bridges, I'd say. Yeah, I'm not against a sketchy bridge, despite my interaction with it this morning. Um, And to say it was sketchy, what I mean is uh, the cross slats that you would roll across Mm -hmm. uh, were few and fairly far between. Uh, Again, which is fine. Uh, But then the bridge itself was composed of a few sections of those that were twisty off camber to each other um you're you're still i mean what you're telling me doesn't sound like something i would call bridgy (laughs) i would say that it just maybe snuck in under the wire of the definition of bridge uh very rideable in my opinion uh not for the beginner but you know uh, I think rideable. So, but we came into it sort of perpendicular, and I, I saw that it the entry was a little uh, challenging. Two of my friends had gone over before, or gone over the bridge successfully before me. So you know, everything looks good. And then I, I sort of 
paused. I sort of track standed. Track stood. Is that a word? We'll go with standed. I like that. Standed. It just has a great ring. Yeah, I standed. I track standed there just at the beginning. And I I very professionally, I thought, uh, skitched my rear tire, my rear wheel around so Mm -hmm. that I was lined up with the bridge. And I thought, great. Uh, Executed perfectly. And then I went to take that first pedal stroke uh, and my front tire just hit the front of the bridge, did not, did not rise, did Did not not do the thing, did not pass go directly to jail, unfortunately. So I went over and because it was a bridge, I didn't land on the bridge. I went down some feet. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, And it's a wetland there, so there was some squelchy wetness, which is fine. Um, All's fair in love and and war. But I, my hands, I smashed my hands on something and I bent my right pinky back at an angle that um, evolution did not dictate was acceptable. Not to spec. Yeah, so my hand is a little swollen and there's a bruise blooming in the palm. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have you trouble know, typing periods. Yes. Um, but, you know, uh, if you crash and ice and ibuprofen will get you through, is it really a crash? I don't even know. I would just say that the combination of being in a poor mental state, lacking sleep, and then giving myself an ouchie uh, doesn't have me feeling my tip-top best. Mm. Yeah, okay. Well, that scans. Um, I certainly get it. Uh, yeah. I, I had a, an exceptionally minor uh, tip over on, um, on Sunday. Uh, I was riding my favorite trails out in West County, <laughs> and um there was a big storm during my last trip away uh i got all the objective evidence of it during my ride that day the amount of pine duff on the trail uh was i'm going with remarkable um and yeah. there were a lot of trees down and there was one tree that was part way down not all the way down um and i thought you know if I just put my chin on my stem, I can squeak under this. <laughs> it's, you know, foreshadowing things for the audience is always so much fun. Um, especially if you're able to laugh at yourself and, and uh, uh, note to audience, um, take a deep breath. So you'll be able to laugh in full. Um, I clubbed a branch, not even the actual trunk. I clubbed a branch uh, the lowest portion of this tree with my head and helmet. Um, at least it was the, the helmet that made contact. I came to a stop. Yeah. I, I, I ceased to move forward. And then because of the nature of the circumstance, all I could do was kind of tip over onto (laughs) the rotting trunk of a redwood and there was enough, you know, mulchy stuff and pine duff and whatnot that there was a little bit of a mound around where this tree had fallen. 
so that, you know, by the time I landed, um, uh, my feet were higher than the rest of me and mm. still clipped into the bike. So we know how that goes. You know, there's yeah. that there, there's struggle. Number one, release the feet. Yeah. Struggle number two, figure out how you're going to get up. And because I was on all this spongy material, um, the extrication process probably took the better part of a, a minute just because I'd put my hand somewhere and it would just sink. <laughs> um, I, I hit my uh, lower back just above my pelvis on the right side uh, on the trunk. And it required some ibuprofen for the next day. Uh, I think that qualifies as a crash. I'm not complaining. It was sore for a day. It's fine now. Um, you know, blood sacrifice to the gods. The, the, this is what's called for periodically. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, my, my own, and I should say that the comedy of mine was that as I lay there in the, I don't know, bog? Bog isn't right. <laughs> No, that sounds that sounds fair for uh, yeah, Eastern Massachusetts. Sure. Yeah, as I lay there in the sodden mud and muck, uh, I began to feel my bibs soak through, and that got me. <laughs> that, that made you move. Yeah, that made me move pretty quick, because you know that's organic matter, and sometimes it doesn't smell that great either. It didn't. I just. I was like, my hands really hurt, and. I'm beginning to soak through a part of me that I don't want wet for the rest of this ride. Uh, okay. So now I got to ask one other question because it yeah. may amuse me and our audience. Do you have any memory of the sounds that your friends made as you were <laughs> pitching into said bog? Um, well, two of them had already passed that way and I don't think they saw it. My friend Fez, who was behind me, uh, I don't, I don't know. He had fallen off a few times. Like it was a pretty, um, it was a pretty, uh, smash and grab morning. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what those sounds were. I don't know what those sounds were. They were pretty nice. All of them were pretty nice to me afterwards as I tried to like grip the bars and, or like rest things on the bars So I didn't have to grip. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. This will all be funny later. Um, <laughs> oh, I should stop laughing. Yeah, it, it's not funny until later. Okay. Well, no, it can be funny now. It'll be funny to me later. Yeah, that seems accurate. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't you lead us off now? <clears throat> oh, sure, 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 sure. Uh, today, I think we're talking about riding with greatness. Yes, we mm -hmm, we um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. both we sort of happened on these last week and resolved to tell our stories this week. So, so my story is pretty odd and random, but thoroughly enjoyable. the The background goes something like this: my good friend and neighbor and constant riding companion Jonathan, who speaking of crashes is as we speak in surgery to repair an elbow he smashed on the pavement in a crash last week. Shout out, Jonathan. Feel better real soon. Ow. Uh, he used to work... Yeah, that's right. Uh, plates and... plates, Screws and plates. Mm. Um, so I have no problems. That's right. Um, Jonathan used to work with a guy named Bjorn Kuiper. <laughs> this work they do has nothing to do with bikes. Okay. Well... Bjorn is the son of Henny Kuiper. 
Penny, for those either not that into cycling history or too young to know, is arguably in one of the top five most successful male road cyclists of all time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he he won four of the five. Yeah. Solid. He won four of the five monuments. He won an Olympic gold medal uh, in Munich, 1972. He was world champion on the road in 75. He won multiple tour stages uh, and multiple Vuelta stages. His Palmar, Pal, Pal, his CV is very, <laughs> very impressive. Although he yeah. never had the kind of personal controversies and dramatic stories that guys like Merckx and Eno and Ancatil and Kopi had. He's literally in that company. Those are probably those four plus him are probably the top five ever. He's literally in that group, but without the same personal legend, um, because he's just a low key. He colored inside the lines and was not a Grand Tour. Yes. uh, Rider. You know, he's not better known mostly because he was not a Grand Tour rider uh, for the GC. Uh, he won the green Jersey sometimes. Uh, I don't recall how many he was one of the only sprinters that Eddie Merckx was really concerned about. Yes. Yes. That's, I mean, that's kind of enough. You know, if Eddie Merckx is, is worried about you, you are therefore, you know, all other wins aside, you are officially a badass. Oh yes. 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 Very true. Um, so Bjorn had a kid, and as a result, Henny and his wife came over to visit and see their grandkid. Uh, and since Bjorn doesn't really ride, he asked Jonathan and some other guys at work to take his dad on a scenic ride here in New England. (laughs) And because I was riding with some of those guys at the time, and because I had a lot of bikes, uh, they asked me along, and it was my job to provide a bike for Henny. Was that nerve-wracking? Absolutely, yes. Uh, anyway, I uh, that was also foreshadowing, incidentally. <laughs> I, I show up on the morning of the ride, and I meet this guy who is, by then, 63 years old. But you get one look, and you're like, oh, that guy is different. Like, he's 20 years older than most of us, but his quads are like cannons, and he has this barrel chest and and just that presence that great athletes have, like he is a he's 63, but he is a physical specimen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we roll out uh, pretty shortly. He pulls over to the side and indicates a problem with the bike. Um, the cranks are loose, <laughs> like really loose. <laughs> And that's because I put that bike back together a few months earlier and never tightened them. Um, I don't know why. Uh, And imagine the gut level embarrassment of giving one of cycling's all time greats a crocked bike to ride. Uh, Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, Luckily, someone had an eight millimeter hex on them and we tightened up and rolled out again just like that. Um, I apologized and he was very gracious about it. Uh, there was a, a time limit, right? So Henny had to meet the family at an event. So we only got like 35 miles in, but let me tell you in those 35 miles, he pretty much rode our legs off (laughs) casually. (laughs) I was cranked up. 
Yeah, casually. I was cranked up to breathless and chasing and just holding on. And he was rolling along chatting, like easy, effortless. <laughs> uh, the re- other remarkable thing about it was that he was very um, free and easy with the conversation. I had sort of resolved not to ask too many questions about questions about his career. I was like, oh, he's on vacation. He just wants to go for a ride. I'm not going to like badger him about, you know, tell me about that time at Perry Roubaix. <laughs> um, but he was more than happy to tell stories. So we we got a few hours of kind of the most amazing tales of racing Eddie Merckx and winning classics and all of that. He said that, um, you know, at the sharp end of things, and there were a few, few very, it was a bit of a golden age for racing in the 70s. Yeah. Um, the thing that he said he had, he wasn't faster than other people necessarily, but once all the attacks had come in, he said he always had one more attack and that was the secret (laughs) to his success. Um, anyway, he was, he was happy to even talk about his days as a director sportif, you know, a team manager for guys like Andy Hampston and Lance Armstrong. Uh, I didn't ask any pointed questions about doping because I, I frankly, I thought I knew the answers uh, and I did. And <laughs> I thought, you know, it'd be sort of rude. Like, let's like stories are good, but let's keep it. Yeah, let's keep it chill. Uh, all in all, though, super nice guy, super strong rider and a very cool experience. Mm. Uh, and as we as we discussed um, last week, I think you have something the same but different yeah. to share with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, since I don't really have anything to add to your story, uh, we're just going to go ahead and do our little sponsor break and come back and maybe my voice will be a little less croaky. Back in 1991, I rented a mountain bike for Fat Tire Bike Week in Crested Butte, Colorado. I'd been on a bike tour prior to this, so the only shoes and pedals I had were for the road and were clipless. What I quickly learned was that A. Clipless pedals on mountain bikes were a very good idea, and B. The difficulty of starting on a steep incline told me that creating a pedal that engaged on either side would be important. I figured, cool concept, but no one will ever make that. Color me amazed when, a year later, Shimano introduced the first two-sided clipless mountain bike pedal, the SPD. One look at the pedal told me they had figured out the very thing I thought no one would ever sort out— 30 years later, and my preferred pedal for mountain biking is still the Shimano SPD. They are so effective that I use them for my gravel riding as well. This is just another instance of Shimano seeing around the curve. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. What's your story? So, back in 2016, my friend James Winchester pulled together... A rather incredible number of people, bikes, and machines to celebrate the 90th anniversary of the venerated Italian brand, Mozzie Bicycles. At the time, James was the product manager for Mozzie, 
And when you're the product manager of a small brand, um, you're the shepherd. You're charged with an incredible number of duties, basically almost all the duties. Uh, you design the new bikes. You forecast sales. You work with the factory producing the bikes. You pick what parts are on them, and you lead the charge in marketing. Um, on the surface, it sounds like a really fun job. It's kind of the, the job that most people dream of having in the bike industry. But unless you really love the minutia of spreadsheets and are amazing with details, like one of your jobs is to make sure that all the cable housing is trimmed to the correct length for each size bicycle. You have to go over mm. to the factory and the workers pull out stretches of housing and you say, well, for this bike, we're going to cut it this long. You know, it's, it's all detail all the time. And James had the head for it. So, uh, yeah, he was a good guy for the good guy for the job. Most people, this job would just be hell. I know it would be awful for me as much as I love bikes and as much of a detail freak as I am. Anyway, so James brought together Americans who had won national and even world championships on Mozzie bikes, like Janie Eikhoff, who was a monster on the track and rode uh, a purple pursuit bike that they made. Um, and then like uh, people who had run the Mozzie U.S. operation, uh, like Ted Kirkbride, um, as well as people who had helped make the Mozzie name famous, like Dennis Christopher. One of the more amazing elements of the celebration was an event held at a small theater in the San Diego suburbs. This might have been Lucadia. I'm not sure. James was able to talk Dennis Christopher, who played Dave Stoller in the film Breaking Away, into coming down. Uh, anybody who knew James will not be surprised that he was able to talk Dennis Christopher into coming down for this. Um, the evening was billed as a question and answer session with Christopher. And while it promised to be fun, it did contain one really epic surprise. Uh, Dave Stoller's character as, orig as originally written by screenwriter, Steve Tesich was a lout. Uh, he was this Italian guy with slicked back hair and a womanizer and much less about the romance than, shall we say, the conquest. Um, well, Dennis Christopher read the script and concluded that he didn't believe the character true to the narrative arc of the film. That is that Dave Stoller wasn't a romantic in love with Italy and captivated by the idea of being a pro cyclist and going to Italy. So he sat down with Tessich and worked with him to reinvent just who Stoller was. This idealistic kid who didn't understand much about the real world. A kid who still doted on his mom. You know, graduated from high school but hasn't launched. Uh, failure to launch, as they say. Uh, didn't have a clear sense of his identity and how identity is informed by integrity. Remember, much of the film is based on this one simple lie uh, to Kathy, Katharina, right? Mm -hmm. So in short, Dennis Christopher gave us the Dave Stoller we all fell in love with. That was not a creation of Steve Tesich's, which is just kind of an epically mind-blowing thing. 
So, you know, I said, I got to, I got to yeah. interrupt and say, as, as a writer, I definitely would have told him where to stick it, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Moving right along. I definitely would have ruined that film, but, but go on. <laughs> So the next day, a hundred or so riders gathered at Campanello, USA's headquarters, uh, also in the greater uh, San Diego suburbs, uh, for a ride with Dennis Christopher. Um, Christopher still has the mozzie that he rode in the film. And while he did confess that he rode it with a flat bar for some years and realized at some point that that was sacrilege uh, and built it back up, restored it to be in its build as seen in the film. Um, yeah. So he, he gets that. Uh, anyway, Dennis Christopher wasn't going to ride that mozzie on the ride much as people wanted that. He's a rather slight man and doesn't often ride bikes. So someone had arranged for him to ride an e-bike on our little jaunt down the coast. Just one problem. The ride rolls out and no one had shown him how the controller on that particular bike he'd been loaned worked. So a hundred of my friends took off on a group ride as cyclists taking off on a group ride, take off in moments. The entire group was up the road. Now, I had my photographer hat on sort of under beneath my helmet. Um, And so I had stayed with him because one of the things I really like to do is get photos of people actually riding bikes and come on, getting an image of Dennis Christopher on an e-bike. That's an ad campaign waiting to happen. Uh, But just, you know, I, I was there to ride with Dennis Christopher. I wasn't there for, you know, bike practice. Um, and aside, he is a big believer in e-bikes. So he and a friend of his who had joined him on the drive down pulled over and I found that the motor was off. The controller, was, <laughs> the, the e-bike was not even on. No assist right. at all. So I turn it on, I bump it up and I show him where the selector was so that he could set his assist level. I didn't immediately put it on turbo. I put it on something a little more mild and less jerky uh and you know then we got back to our ride here's the thing this is this is why this is a story with the group up the road dennis became rather anxious uh we talked and what he told me was that he felt so honored to help create a film that had become such a cultural touchstone for a community that he felt a responsibility to live to live up to the character he had created um that that caused me my own anxiety uh so what i shared with him was that we hoped he would see the event as in part a way for us to thank him for speaking on our behalf he had created someone who felt true to our experience his responsibility such as it was was over. He had done his work. This was our opportunity to thank him and celebrate his effort to bring to life a character that really transcended cycling. He's somebody that we could all identify identify with at some level. So my overwhelming desire was to communicate to him that he was among friends, 
that he was in a population that he didn't have to prove himself with. We accepted him and he could remove the mask. Uh, he was one of us in full. Uh, we weren't expecting him to still be Dave Stoller. Um, and I, I just felt like there wasn't enough I could say about that and about how grateful we were to him for bringing that character to life and giving cycling such a great presentation, uh, in the cinema. Uh, we, uh, we got to a point, um, actually we pulled over at an e-bike store, uh, at one point and he just looked at all the different bikes and, uh, really, uh, really enjoyed that. Um, and we talked about getting him hooked up with an e-bike and him doing some advertising efforts, uh, uh, for, uh, one of the brands or a collection of brands. So here's the thing on my drive home, what I continued to be struck by was how much I felt a responsibility to convey to him. Your work is done. You did us a solid in a way few people ever have. It had been a really touching experience for me. Um, and to the degree that I could be a person to thank him on behalf of the cycling community, that's really what I wanted to do. Um, but be, beyond that, we'd shared a very personal moment and connected in a way that will <clears throat> that will be precious to me for the rest of my days. Mm. I remember <clears throat> um, I remember when I got back to the campy headquarters, my friends were all like, where were you? Yeah, we thought you were on the, but weren't you on the ride? We never saw you. Uh, and I said, well, I hung back with Dennis Christopher, you know, and they were like, what you spent the whole day riding with Dennis Christopher. And it was only a couple hours. Uh, and they're like, what was that like? And at the time I was still so overwhelmed. All I could do was really shake my head. Um, it had been such a mind blowing experience. Uh, we actually traded contact information because I wanted to get him hooked up with one of the e-bike companies that really has some horsepower. Uh, and on my drive home, I texted to him a quote from the Cameron Crowe film, Almost Famous. It was an effort on my part to try to uh, put in perspective our experience as I saw it. The quote is attributed to the music critic Lester Bangs, uh, played in the film by Philip Seymour Hoffman. In it, he says, The only true currency in this bankrupt world is when you share with someone else when you're uncool. <clears throat> and regarding that experience, the last thing I want to share... is how much I ache over the fact that my friend James <laughs> the fact that my friend James Winchester who put this whole thing together is no longer with us 
And I'm thinking of his wife, Carrie, and his kids, Ava, Wyatt, and Ian. Maybe we take another break for Shimano. Sure. This podcast is brought to you by Shimano. I remember getting my first real road bike uh, in the middle 90s. And the guy selling it to me, uh, his main pitch was that of all the bikes in my price range, this was the only one that had Shimano Ultegra components on it. And it was, I guess I wasn't really, I wasn't a, a heavy I was a bike nerd, but I wasn't a gear guy at that point. And so I was kind of, this was my first introduction to the idea that Ultegra was somehow this gold standard in road components. And I kind of, you know, I'm a cynical guy. I'm a skeptical guy. And I, I sort of dismissed that out of hand. And then I rode the other bikes and I was like, oh no, I get exactly what that means. And it, it, it's never stopped meaning that. I've had so many Ultegra bikes uh, since then, and it's it really means something over a period of 25 years or, or whatever. Uh, it's more now. It's more like 30 to have made something that is the gold standard. Um, and so that's part of the reason we're proud to have them as a sponsor for the podcast. Okay, we're back uh, after our second break. Yes. How about we move on to Paceline Picks? What do you have for us this week? Uh, sure. Uh, today I'm picking the Lizard Skins Cash Saddlebag. Uh, uh, a saddlebag is one of the least glamorous accessories in cycling. I think we can agree on that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but its fit and function is also sort of crucial. Um <laughs> I replaced the bag I was using, which shall remain nameless, uh, because it was loud. <laughs> yeah, it was loud. Mm, I've I had, had a loud well. bag. What 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 color yeah, loud the, was the it? The things in it. Ah, uh, it was like purple loud. Um, mm. The things in it would somehow rattle despite being packed in like the proverbial sardines. <laughs> I think it had something to do with this rigid base panel the bag had, has, mm -hmm. still has it. Uh, but the upshot was on my gravel bike, I just couldn't stand the racket. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I had rearranged stuff a dozen times. It was all packed in there. I was like, how is it making this sound? Um, so anyway, let me say Lizard Skin sent me this bag for review. I didn't pay for it. Uh, their offer coincided very neatly with my search for a new bag. Uh, still, I was not and am not obligated to talk about it. So, uh, here's what I need from a saddlebag. I should mention I got the medium size cash, which also comes in a small, a large, and an extra large. Mm. And we'll have a review up on the site um, this week uh, that will show you the sizes if, if, that's a th if you're interested in that. Um, so what I need from a saddlebag, first, it needs to fit all the stuff, right? Yeah. Uh, tube, levers, CO2, maybe a tubeless dart kit, if that's what you're, if that's how you're rolling. Uh, second, it needs to fit up under the saddle neatly and securely. 
Third, apparently it also needs to be quiet. I wasn't aware that that was a thing before, but that, as it turns out, um, and I wonder if anyone in the history of ever has gone into a bike shop and said, I'm looking for a more quiet saddlebag. Um, anyway, Lizard Skins Cash, check, check, and check. Uh, it's also got a welded zipper to keep water and dirt out, which is oh. nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bigger deal than than people might think. Yeah. Yeah. Um and it's reasonably neutral looking. It blends in. I'm not looking to make a fashion statement usually with my saddlebag. Um the cash is $27.99, $27.99 in medium. Price goes up and down not very much with the size and it comes in jet black, although it's heathered. It comes in jet black and no other colors, which suits me, as you know, very well. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I didn't realize what a problem noise could be in a saddlebag until one occasion when I had a, a saddlebag that was big enough uh, to hold two tubes plus a CO2 gun and multiple CO2 cartridges and a few other little odds and ends and i went through my second tube one day but there were still the little oh, yeah. uh empty co2 canisters uh cartridges inside the saddlebag and um i i don't know what to say i sounded like but i sounded like something that was metal and loud yeah yes so yeah it's it's mm. terrible and on a gravel bike you know, yeah. you're in the woods trying to achieve some peace and you just you sound like a rolling mariachi band and not in the good way. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Yeah. All right. My pick this week is the film Breaking Away because duh. Um, God, I remember watching this as a kid with my mom. Uh, here's uh, a really interesting tidbit about Breaking Away, which I think justifies why I get to make it my pick. Uh, because I am going to share something interesting about it that is not widely known. So Breaking Away was originally two different screenplays by the writer Steve Tesich. There was a romance about this cyclist who wanted to be Italian and was wooing a college girl, but it lacked any sort of engine to drive the action. And Tesich had another screenplay, which was about a kid trying to come to terms with his father and forge an identity of his own and figure out his life after high school. Uh, apparently, neither one of them were working all that well, and Tesich decided to stick the two in a wearing blender, and he came up with a very, very human story. Um, I'd argue that it's the one great cycling movie made so far. I, I argue that there is one cycling novel and one cycling movie. Oh, at least worth consuming the writer. What's the novel? The writer. Yeah. Tim Corbett's Tim the writer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the bicycle thief? <sighs> um, cycling is incidental to that. Yeah. Film. It's a wonderful film, but it, it, cycling is not what I'd call pivotal. On a scale of zero to breaking away, where would you put American flyers? Um, <laughs> depending on my, uh, de depending on, shall we say, uh, unnamed factors, it's a solid six to maybe a low seven. 
Oh, interesting. It's okay. So American Flyers, uh, for those who haven't seen it, it's a Kevin Costner film. That alone is kind of amazing because uh, he really does a fine job in it. Uh, there, there's a lot of good acting in that film. But, you know, it's these two brothers who hook up and one has been a, a high level racer and the other has been a, a layabout. Uh, somebody else who has failed to launch fully. And uh, they go off to do the hardest stage race in the Rocky Mountains, which is, you know, reality wise, just laughable absolutely laughable uh but it's a movie and so we have suspension of disbelief in the fact that most people watching the movie really don't know what it takes to be a high level elite cyclist um but it's you know it's got a real plot uh you've got these two brothers who are you know, bonded and yet competitive with each other and there's family strife uh and uh, yeah, you've got relationship stuff, somebody falling in love. Um, it's not a one note story. And so it's, yeah, it's, I'd give it a seven. I really would. That's generous. I would give it a four. <laughs> <laughs> it's got, it's got this, um, it's got a strong current of Kevin Costner cornball nonsense. Like he just can't resist these sort of like uh, uh, stereotypical pastiches. But it, well, whatever. Remember, you're, the scale you defined was zero to breaking way, not zero to Citizen Kane. Sure. Zero to Citizen Kane, it is a four. Oh, it's a one. It's a two. <laughs> <laughs> What about it's, Quicksilver? What it's do you think Patrick of and Robot Bacon? at the movies. Uh, <laughs> Quicksilver. Well, see, what's interesting about Quicksilver is Quicksilver probably gets added points for cornball nonsense because Quicksilver in cycling terms is so bad. It's good. It, oh, it is. It, it is the roadhouse of cycling. Yes, that's a that is a very apt, it is. It uh, is. Comparison. Uh, uh, it is a guilty pleasure that we can consume relatively guilt-free. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yes, yes. There, we so I would put, <laughs> I would say American Flyers uh, zero to breaking away is a four, and Quicksilver is a four. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if those are available on Amazon Prime. I'm, I might need to do that, like. Friday night. I'm sure they're available somewhere. Well, <laughs> yeah. The last blockbuster on Earth. The last blockbuster, that's right. <laughs> All righty, everybody. Uh, that's it for this episode of The Pace Line. Uh, links to these things and, and even the other movies. I'll dig some stuff up. Uh, so there will be stuff in our show notes. Before we go, I'd like to put in a plug for TCI's other podcast, Revolting, which is a cycling podcast, not really about cycling except occasionally, uh, with John and Steve Knievel of All Hail the Black Market. <clears throat> we hope you like them, and if you do, uh, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, send us questions. If you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show, and if you have, 
please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.